MSW Media. So, Renato, what are the latest developments in the Trump cases this week? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, I think it was hard for us to even narrow down one development this week. There's just been so much going on. Yeah, I think that from here moving forward, this may be a recurring thing where there's just a lot of developments happening in different cases. And some of them might not have even happened, but when you and I talk about it. So I think you and I and our viewers, our listeners are just going to have to maybe uh, be prepared for that. That's right. And I should note, we're recording this a little earlier in the week and Tuesday. So you know, not everything has happened yet. And some of the things we're going to talk about is happening in the future. Maybe by the time you actually download and listen to the podcast or watch it on YouTube, they may have already happened. But you're going to at least get a record of what our take is going into some of these important hearings that are scheduled for this week. Exactly. Uh, but let's start with one that actually already took place. This was yesterday down in Florida. Judge Eileen Luce Cannon had <laughs> a hearing under the under Section 6 of the Classified Information Procedures Act. And we've had Brian Greer on before to talk about SEPA. But basically, this was about discovery. And just as a reminder for people who are listening... SEPA is basically a procedural statute that governs trials that involve classified information. And that's because these kinds of national security trials raise a tension between a defendant's due process rights and a government's need to protect national security. So whereas in a regular criminal case, the government would be obligated to hand over basically everything to the defendant, that becomes a little more complicated when it involves classified information that could endanger national security. And so what the government normally does under a Section 6 hearing, it's an ex parte hearing, which means that the judge meets privately with the government and they go over the materials in their possession and the judge decides what needs to be turned over and if the government believes that it is just too sensitive to hand over whether the government can include a summary or a substitution. And what happened yesterday is that Judge Cannon first met with Trump's team, ex parte, for about four hours, I think, um, and then met with the government, ex parte. And I think the goal here is that first she wanted to understand Trump's defense. Like, what does he plan to actually assert as his defense? Because then when she talks to the government attorneys, it will allow her to assess 
which like what what is actually really necessary for him to have for that defense. And obviously, Trump's lawyers don't want to show Smith and his team their hand right now. And of course, Smith is not going to show him all the information or talk about it in front of him. So that's basically the background here. That's right. And I will just say from a procedural perspective, that makes some sense to me. Um, In other words, I think it totally makes sense for the judge to understand what the defense arguments are going to be, because different defense counsel could have wildly different theories about what the defense would look like. And so that would change the importance uh, of particular pieces of evidence, and, and that would have an impact on the due process rights of the defendant. So I could totally understand why a judge would need to understand that. And similarly, as you point out, um, the the you know the judge obviously has to understand from the government's perspective the the downside to the United States of America and its citizens uh, to having that information in the hands of the defense. Uh, usually, through this process, the the government gets a pretty um, uh, uh, heavy uh, thumb on the scale in terms of the interests uh, when they're weighed against one another. Uh, that may not happen here. Right. And we know that for Judge Cannon, I mean, one, for one thing, she's a pretty new judge. She probably doesn't have a lot of experience with SEPA. I don't think that she handled national security prosecutions when she was a federal prosecutor. So this is going to be new to her to begin with, which is, I think, not necessarily extraordinary. I'm sure that that this happens often in different cases, depending on, you know, especially if they're brought outside of D.C., I would guess. But also, she's already demonstrated kind of a cavalier attitude towards classified information, because if you'll recall, back in 2022, when Trump filed his crazy civil suit in her courtroom to get her to appoint a special master to go through the documents. And he was claiming executive privilege, et cetera, et cetera. The government had asked to just exempt all the classified information from that, from the get-go. And she had, she ruled against the government and basically said, no, you know, the special master. And I I think Trump also like have have to be able to go through all this stuff. And she was overruled on that point by the 11th Circuit before she was eventually overruled on the whole kit and caboodle. But I mean, that tells me that I don't know that she's really, I mean, I agree with you that it's important for her to hear what Trump's theory of the case is and and ensure that he gets all of his due process rights protected. But I'm also not entirely confident that she understands the sensitivity of classified information. Yeah, I think that's fair, a fair, a fair assessment. And, you know, she's been roundly criticized for how she handled that pre-indictment matter. You know, I will say since the indictment, she's been more careful. You know, like most judges, she has no experience in this area. But it's been interesting to see that there have been ways in which she's maybe, um, I wouldn't say put a thumb on the scale, but definitely um aided the the Trump defense team's efforts to delay um, through her rulings and, you know, done so in ways that are very hard to pin down. I mean, when we've had Brian Greer on our podcast in the past, 
Um, he mentioned, I think the last time he was here, didn't he have like some nifty chart in which he like dissected all these ways in which she's like added a week here or days there and this and that yeah. in order to effectively slow down the rate of that uh, criminal proceeding? Right. I think one saving grace is that under SEPA, any ruling that she makes on the discovery process in terms of what has to be handed over, if it is adverse to the government, it can be appealed immediately. Uh, So we've talked before about interlocutory appeals. These are things that can be appealed before the trial commences and, and is concluded. This is one of those instances. And the statute also provides for an expedited review process for those. So that can be appealed and a response come can come pretty quickly. So Smith isn't stuck with something if she really is cuckoo pants about the national security information. Um, but it does seem like she she still has she wields a lot of power to kind of slow roll this regardless. That's right. I, I think we've always said from the beginning, Asha, that because of that process that Trump and his team really had the upper hand in terms of delay in this particular case, given the SEPA and the classified documents at issue. And I think, you know, uh, you know, you've mentioned this potential to to, um, have an interlocutory appeal. Sure. A lot of our listeners are like, oh, Smith wouldn't want to slow things down. You know, I think realistically, he probably knows this isn't going to happen before the election anyway. So I wouldn't be surprised if at certain points they exercise this. Uh, option, and, you know, and and really, you know, you're already starting to see some pushback from Smith. I mean, he was very explicit that Trump seemed is trying to delay. He was he did not mince any words in his filings uh, in this case. And there's already been a fight about redactions. Um, and I think it was a little overblown. There's been some overblown commentary on that. But the short answer is, you know, it seemed like she was favoring Trump's team with that. And Smith is not afraid to call her out. And I think there will come a point in time where he will uh, potentially exercise that that right to an interlocutory appeal, even if that means slowing things down a bit. Yeah. The only thing, other thing I will say about SEPA is that there is a provision in there, just so people know. And I think Brian might have covered this. But if she were to tell the government that they have to hand over something wholesale and she says that you can't substitute it or or create a summary. And then Smith has the opportunity to file an affidavit with the attorney general saying, hey, we cannot hand this over. If that happens, she actually has the power to dismiss the whole indictment. Which I assume can be appealed, but I'm just saying that it's there. And... I would be interested maybe in a future episode to get Brian's thoughts on how likely that might be to occur. But anyway, I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, she's got definitely a lot of power to potentially tank that case. And so while it's the most serious case and the case in which there's overwhelming evidence and a pretty straightforward set of charges, um, there's a lot of uh, potential pitfalls for Jack Smith. Um, well, look, that's not obviously the only uh, hearing this week. I mean, speaking of pitfalls, um, it sure seems like Fonnie Willis uh, has managed to create her own pitfalls. I don't know. She's tripping over her own uh, shoes, so to speak. Uh, there's some new allegations there about potential false statements that her and 
uh, Mr. Wade made regarding uh, the beginning of their relationship. And there is a hearing scheduled for this week, which hasn't happened yet. Correct. So there was also a hearing on Monday because one of the defendants uh, a few weeks ago filed an explosive motion to dismiss the indictment, alleging that there was a conflict of interest uh, that disqualified Willis from handling this case because she has a personal relationship with the special prosecutor whom she hired, Nathan Wade, and also alleging that she's benefiting from the salary that he's receiving uh, because they have gone on vacations, et cetera, et cetera. She filed a response. By the way, a number of other defendants, including Trump, have now joined that motion. Um, But she then filed a response saying, no, there's no conflict. And our relationship didn't begin until after these charges were filed. And there's been no financial benefit that she's enjoyed. And Wade also filed something similar. So then... Michael Roman, who is the one who initially filed the motion, was like, "Uh uh-uh, y'all lying, and (laughs) said that he he wanted to, he issued subpoenas to Willis and Wade and a number of other people wanting them to testify because he thinks that what they are saying is false. And so on Monday, the judge was considering whether to quash those subpoenas and, uh, Willis and Wade are basically arguing, no, we don't need to testify about anything. There's no question of fact that's in that's material to this that that you need to hear about. You can just rule on this. Um, And the judge basically said, actually, no, there is some dispute right now about the facts. And he has postponed that to Thursday. And, you know, he did make a comment in the in the context of all of that, in which he says that it's possible that he will uh, determine that Fonnie Willis uh, must recuse herself which really makes the stakes very high. I think if she recused herself, it's, there's a potential that, you know, Governor Kemp, who's a Republican, could end up appointing uh, someone to, you know, step into her shoes in this case. It's not at all clear that she's just going to be able to have somebody on her team handle it. So, you know, obviously the stakes are significant. Uh, the judge is concerned, I would say, about the uh, allegations and this seems, as we've discussed before, uh, obviously a very significant unforced error by Fonnie Willis. Yeah, and I think it's even more serious than that, Renato. Um, I know that Norm Eisen, our colleague, has said, and he's really in the weeds on this, that under Georgia law, if she's disqualified, her whole office is disqualified. Yeah. So as you said, that case would have to be transferred to another DA's office. So, A, not only would, I guess, the governor, like you said, or somebody has to find another office to take it, but then they would have to get up to speed. And I think I saw Norm on CNN last night saying that there's another case in the state of Georgia where a disqualification happened, not with Fonnie Willis, but another prosecutor, like a year ago. And that's just like hanging out in the breeze right now. Like nobody is trying that case. So... I mean, I think it could be potentially fatal to this case. And I think we should also highlight that there's one issue on whether there's a conflict of interest based on, you know, the relationship and the financial arrangements um, or even the appearance of a conflict of interest, because the judge noted that as well. But I think there's a second issue, which is if there has been a misrepresentation in the filings, 
that's really, really bad. I mean, to me, that might go beyond misqualification and be like misconduct or something. Well, for sure. Uh, first of all, it's certainly an ethical violation if there's a knowing uh, false statement made to a court. All right. That's an ethical violation in any state bar. But obviously, there may be potentially um, some you know, liability for that as well. I, and I, I'm just to put a finer point on it, I had mentioned that Governor Kemp would be the one who would be appointing uh, you know, who, you know, who, or uh, who would be, you know, stepping in, you know, which office would be taking it over. He is a Republican. And although he's been critical of Trump, uh, the Republican primary electorate might not feel um, kind, look kindly on him appointing a Democrat, for example, to take that over. So, you know, very much could be a, a, a different um, approach to that prosecution um, if, uh, somebody else ends up taking it over. Yeah, I would say the whole thing. I mean, I I don't know if it's actually a disqualifying thing, but I think it's bad idea, Jeans. I mean, I Indeed. if I were advising someone in her shoes, I would not have advised her to uh, have that relationship. That's an understatement of the year. Okay. So what's next? So I think we have one more hearing. This is in the Manhattan DA's case. It's almost like this is like that character from uh, two seasons ago who just sort of shows up <laughs> and is like, hey, I'm here. Um, so if you, in case you forgot, <laughs> Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg uh, did uh, bring the first criminal case against Trump. I think it, in my estimation, it's the least significant of them. Um, and it is, you know, kind of the lowest level of felony in the New York system may not result in prison time and so on. But, um, you know, that case is, uh, is the one case right now that sure looks like it's on track to happen for the election. Um, and you know, you can't really say that about any of the others because the January 6th case we talked last, uh, last week about, uh, the potential that the Supreme court could delay that. Uh, yeah, obviously, Fonnie Willis is shooting herself in the foot, and uh, who knows what you know, Aileen Cannon's going to do to the uh, Mar-a-Lago case. So, here you go. Here's a criminal trial in the midst of a presidential campaign that sure looks like it's going forward uh, very soon. Right. This case was originally scheduled for March 25th, and then when the January 6th case was brought in the DC. Uh, district court. Um, that case was originally scheduled for March 4th. So it was looking like that would, you know, supersede it and this would get pushed back. But now we have this whole appeal happening on this absolute immunity question that may delay that DC case, uh, which kind of clears the way. And I think the hearing on Thursday is basically to rule on some outstanding motions that Trump has made and then to basically. I think set a date for the trial. I do have a question, Renato. What whatever happened to? There were some questions about um, preemption. I think, like federal preemption. Did that ever? And then we never heard about it again. I don't know because the the idea being that this implicates um, mm. federal election law, and it, I mean, kind of indirectly, not in the way that it's actually been charged. But there was some talk along back in season one that uh, of the of the of the trial of the Trump trials show um, that that might 
derailed is, but I just never heard anything about that again. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, you could tell, I'm, I'm sure all of our listeners know these are very <laughs> unscripted conversations. I do know there's there's a bunch of, I think there's a bunch of motions that have been filed and the judge is set to rule on them this week uh, before, after we record this podcast. Um, my sense is that the DA's office very seems very confident they're going to win those. We'll, we'll, We'll see what ends up happening there. They certainly have drawn a very good judge uh, on the case. So this is the same judge who handled the um, the um, uh, Trump organization uh, case. And so, um, you know, I, I think that those are probably going to get disposed of. Uh, but I don't recall whether that was actually one of the motions that Trump's team um, you know, a filed in this case. I mean, one thing I do, what I was very interested in, I should mention, Asha, is the issue of, you know, what are the quote other crimes? Because if if you recall, this is a case charging false business records or false statements in business records. A false statement on its own is often in mo- in many jurisdictions not a crime. You need some other intent along with it. Or a misdemeanor. Yeah, or it's a misdemeanor. Here in New York, it's a misdemeanor unless it's done with the intent to, to, you know, to further another crime, essentially, and, or to promote uh, another crime. And it was unclear in the indictment what those other crimes were. And the DA's office seemed like for a period of time, they were sort of like, we don't know, like we're going to keep it a mystery until trial. And then now they've kind of spelled out a number of different potential uh, crimes that this could be in furtherance of it. It seems like they're going to be like all of the above at trial is what it appears to be from the uh, documents. Yeah. And my guess is that they are going to make the other crime an election. Like, I mean, they don't actually have to prove the other crime. First of all, I think we should point that out. But they do have to create a theory of the case to show that the intent was there to do this other crime. And I think they're going to wrap it back into some kind of election fraud, because I think Bragg's battle right now is demonstrating to a jury and to the court of public opinion that this case is relevant and it matters. And I think, you know, what he's going to say is, look, this was the OG of election interference. This is what happened before he went on. This was like the gateway crime um, that he committed before, you know, it went on to eventually culminate in January 6th. So I think that's what we keep an eye out for. And maybe I'll just make a plug right here that in this week's Substack, I am doing a Trump cases cheat sheet, which kind of goes into all of the developments that are currently happening in the various cases. Well, link below if you're interested in subscribing to that. Um, but I will just say, yeah, I think you know that is that really underscores um, the most important thing that Bragg ha- and his team have to do, not only you know in this trial, but as you point out, just in the court of public opinion, you know this. Uh, this uh, Stormy Daniels stuff was like yesterday's news, to put it mildly. And so charging that this late in the game, um, years after the Trump presidency, you have to wonder why when he passed up on the case that ultimately was brought by uh, Leticia James, uh, that fraud case that looks like it's going to generate a very good result in the civil side. Um, so, and by the way, a, a result that should be coming out also this week, this week. <laughs> after we record. Um, and, and so you'll have to listen next week to hear our take on that. But nonetheless, um, a very important development this week. So, Asha, I have to say, 
despite all of the different cases we've talked about, there was one really important development this week that I feel like it's gotten attention, but maybe not the level of attention it deserves. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's cuckoo pants. Is that a, is that a legal term? This is a legal term now. This is going to basically be the, the adjective for uh, anything Trump moving forward. So basically Trump announced at a rally that that he was going to use leverage to force NATO members to, quote, pay their dues. And if they didn't, then he would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell it wants in Europe. Yeah, I think he was not just implying, but he pretty much came out and said that he was going to encourage Russia to attack them or something, or basically say they should be attacked or can be attacked. Very bizarre. Um, it really sounded like he thinks of our system of alliances and NATO, which is just a bedrock of U.S. foreign policy, as essentially like a protection racket. Like he's right. a mafia boss and you basically have to pay if you don't want your liquor store to be robbed, that sort of thing. Um, it's not only, I mean, to say it's bizarre is really understating it. NATO and the North Atlantic Treaty have been a kind of a core uh, to U.S. foreign policy and to American security for so long now, right? Um, literally for you know, many decades. And in many ways, NATO is the, is a big reason, if not the reason, why we won the Cold War, a very significant reason. And it's one, one ace in the hole, our relationships that we have against Russia and against uh, other you know potential rivals in the world. And that's something that they're trying to unravel. I mean, it makes it, it's no surprise that Putin wants Trump to be reelected as president. Yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> this is literally Putin's dream, right? So you know, we had NATO and then you had for the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact. And this is what was sort of the alliances that kind of uh, protected each entity. And what Putin has been really miffed about is that since the fall of the Berlin Wall, there's there's no more Warsaw Pact. There's no buffer for Russia. And so what he has continually been concerned about is the expansion of NATO uh, getting up to his doorstep, which you know he feels is is a is a threat, uh, and so he has designs to move westward and to kind of recreate this old Russian empire. And of course, what stops him is the threat that if he attacks any of a number of countries, that you know he's going to face the the wrath of this entire alliance. Uh, so to say that. Which, of course, the U.S. is kind of the, I would argue, the kind of the primary strength of, right? I mean, of, of course, all of these other countries have their military forces. But to, for, to say that Trump would not back NATO is incredibly, uh, it, it is a huge signal to Putin, which coincidentally also aligns with the refusal of House Republicans to... Uh, you know, pass a bill giving aid to Ukraine uh, because Trump doesn't want them to, which again aligns with Putin's objectives. So the whole thing is just really awful. And I think it's also worth pointing out that 
the only time NATO has Article Five of NATO has been actually invoked was after nine eleven, when all these countries actually came to the aid of the United States. Yeah, it's remarkable. Um, it's it's actually a remarkable you know point. Uh, I I will just say I'll note that not only you mentioned earlier the Warsaw Pact crumbled and no longer exists, but actually and this is part of what makes Putin so upset is that many of the more Warsaw Pact's former members are now members of NATO. Right. And to be clear, that was a bipartisan decision in the United States. You know, George W. Bush, for example, played a role in the expansion of NATO. This is where both Republicans and Democrats were on Team America here and were like, look, we're going to expand NATO because that's in the best interest of the United States to have a more secure Europe to ensure that Russia doesn't come westward in Europe. Um, and it's had an impact because we've seen Putin attack a, a nation that's not part of NATO and Ukraine. We've been defending and helping that. So we've been defending that nation. But we've been helping that nation defend itself. And as a result, of course, we've seen the expansion of NATO to, for example, Finland and and potentially, hopefully soon to Sweden as well. Yeah. And I've been monitoring kind of the conversation about this on Twitter and on TV. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, a law that was passed uh, that basically states that the president cannot unilaterally withdraw from NATO as though that is some constraint on Trump. And I pointed out that, listen, the president has unitary command of the armed forces under Article 2. So it doesn't really matter whether we have formally withdrawn from NATO or not. It is totally up to the discretion of the president whether to deploy forces. And if Trump were president, for example, and a NATO ally got attacked and he decided to just sit in his dining room eating a cheeseburger and watching TV and not do anything, there is literally nothing that Congress could do to force him to deploy troops. Yeah, and really just having not only the former president of the United States, but a leading candidate for president of the United States in 2024 in this election say this is itself destabilizing and the self itself sends a message to our allies that the United States is not a reliable ally and not a reliable partner. I mean, I have to say it's really – the reason I think we're both talking about this, Asha, is that th when you couple this – you mentioned the aid uh, to Ukraine. That's another signal. It's a signal to Ukraine that like you cannot count on the United States support. Like even though your lives are on the line, even though you've been bleeding – uh, arrival to the United States dry on a fraction of um, of the of the uh, with of the population of the money expenditure on the military. Uh, nonetheless, we may just cut off aid entirely for our you know just seemingly random reasons that don't carry forward the interests of the United States. Yes, and I want to just to tie this back to the through line from the Bragg case through Russia. Are you listening? Through January 6th, this signal, by the way, is telegraphing once again that he would welcome Russia's help in the upcoming election. I mean, 
I don't know that you can really interpret this in any other way, because otherwise, what benefit? I mean, we know that Trump is transactional. We know that he doesn't take stances based on some kind of moral conviction. I mean, he believes that pleasing Putin and aligning with Putin's goals is somehow beneficial to him. And I don't think it's a real mystery why. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Trump won the election once before with the help of Russia, and he's hoping they're going to come to his aid again. So, Asha, before we go, um, I don't know about you, but this weekend I spent a lot of time watching the Super Bowl. That was a really long game this time. It was a long game. I kind of had it on because I felt like as a you know dutiful American, I should just have the game on. Um, and plus, everybody else I knew was watching. I had nothing and nobody to hang out with. Anyway, so I had it on and I don't normally get into the Super Bowl, but I have to say I kind of got sucked in at the end. It was great. I mean, this was one of the closest games that we've had. Went into overtime. It was exciting. Um, the new overtime rules were cool. I actually think they worked really well. Like both teams had a shot at it. Um, you actually, Wait, what's the new overtime rule? I have no idea. So it used to be it, actually really kind of unfair is whoever won the coin toss often would just win the game without the other team even getting the ball. Right. So like if, for example, if the new overtime rules weren't in effect, the, if you recall, uh, the Niners got the ball, they drove down the field, they kicked a field goal, game over. And so mm. now both sides get the opportunity to score. And and here what happened was the the 49ers had their chance. They got a field goal out of it. The Chiefs got their opportunity to have a have a have a possession and they ended up scoring a touchdown and that won the game. So there's a fairness to it where both teams got a shot at trying to achieve the same result. When did they make that change? Not that long ago, after there was a a, a postseason brouhaha in the Bills game, a Buffalo Bills game. And so there was a, a mini scandal after the Super Bowl in which the 49ers players said that they had not were not aware. Some of them said they were not aware of the new rule. They weren't prepared for it. And so that's why there's a little mini explanation right around the coin toss by the referee or the umpire. So, yeah, very exciting, though. I mean, what, it, what it, team were you rooting for? So I wasn't really rooting for either team. I'm a Bears fan, uh, and we have things to be excited for because we have the first pick again. Um, so that's something. Uh, it's, I haven't been excited about actually winning football games for a while because we suck so bad. Um, but So I wasn't really cheering for either team. I was kind of cheering for the Chiefs throughout the game at a certain point because, like, all of the – you know, there's all this like, you know, conspiracy theory nonsense during the game, like attacking Taylor Swift. And so I thought that was so silly that it made me almost want to cheer for the Chiefs, but I didn't really care. Yeah, that was basically my my reasoning. <laughs> I, I texted my boyfriend and I was like, wait, which which team is the one that makes Maga really mad? And he was like, <laughs> oh, that's the Chiefs. And I was like, OK, so I was like pretty invested after that. Um <laughs> Winning because I knew that that would like make their heads explode. I don't know why they care about Taylor Swift. I don't really under. I, I haven't been following it. I don't really understand. Is it just that she wants people to vote? 
She endorsed Biden, I think, in 2020. And she's a woman and they're they don't like the fact that she's getting a lot of attention. And I mean, she's got she's a white Southern woman. So there's also, I think, like a betrayal piece there. Well, there was this thing for a very short period of time where they're like, Travis Kelsey's not a real man. And like, this is a guy who's like literally a football player who's won Super Bowls. And I mean, how is he not a real man? He's the guy with a lot of, he's like really tall, like, like a powerful guy with like a lot of facial hair. So he 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 looks pretty manly to me. I don't know. He could probably, yeah, he could probably beat up all the people who say that he's not a real man. And then there was also, I think this whole element where they're like, well, he's, she's making him worse. She's distracting him. And obviously he didn't appear distracted during the Super Bowl. It was just, just silly nonsense. That's so funny. Well, I mean, you know, I, um, I listen to her music. I, I wouldn't call myself a Swifty. I just, you know, I think I'm too old school and listen to other other stuff. But um, I do know a lot of Swifties, including people our age and, of course, younger people. And they are really, they're pretty loyal. I don't know that it's really a smart idea to antagonize them along party lines. I think, it I think make, it's a bad idea. I think idea. it will mobilize bad idea genes. I think it will mobilize a lot of young people to go out and vote for Biden. I couldn't agree more. Now, before we go, do you have a favorite commercial? Were you paying attention during the commercials too? No, I. Oh. Uh, I know okay. that there was like a lot of. I, I did watch the the Jesus commercials. Okay, the I, I the Dunkin' Donuts commercial is the best commercial. With Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, that's my, oh okay. That was my I'll have vote. to check it out. Okay, yeah, I know, I know. I should watch the commercials. I I, I thought you were going to tell me you watch the commercials. I watch the game, but this I I actually watch the commercials more than you this time. That's saying something. Okay, but I'll check out Dunkin' Donuts. M-S-W-Media.